0: back everybody to another edition of running into the fog podcast that I'm west and grateful to be able to co-host with my brother Eric Johnson Eric welcome. Hey Eric how's it going really good we have, a, uh, we have a guest on today's podcast quite a while actually uh, when I say quite a while 15 16 17 years Tommy Tommy Goodwin uh, with uh, uh, his own description that I'm going to allow him to share here in a little bit about what he's doing today we met you, to Tommy, way back in the day, uh, early 2000s, we were strategic intelligence uh, leader and member of the team that Cody Holtzman put together out there at AARP in Washington, D.C.
1: That's right. It has been a long time, and it's uh, great, to, uh, great to see two old friends through the screen, even if we're not able to do this one in person.
2: Great to see yeah. you, Tommy.
1: Looking forward to this conversation.
0: You know what they say, um, time is uh, generally a good thing, except on a man's receding hairline. And I know that at least you and I, Eric, hasn't quite gotten with the
2: program with the corporate haircut. You can't see this part of my head. <laughs> the, the, the looks of jealousy
1: being shot to Eric through the screen right now just daggers, <laughs> I tell you. All right.
2: right
0: on. So um, today, podcast number 21 recording. We actually ironically recorded number 20 a few, few hours ago here on September 8th of 2021. Um, by my count, we're going to release this podcast around November 23rd, but I just realized that, uh, at least here in the U.S., we have a Thanksgiving Day holiday two days later, November 25th, so I may, we might manipulate that release date
2: just a little bit. I say take the podcast to Thanksgiving at Grandma's house and listen with your relatives. That's my suggestion.
0: There you go. There you go. So, uh, Eric, you want to kick us off here today with uh, questions or comments for Tommy? Get us started.
2: Yeah, well, you know, Tommy, the thing that I guess is top of mind for me is tell us about how the meetings business has adapted or failed to adapt since the meteor hit about 18, 19 months ago of COVID-19 and the subsequent lockdown, shutdown world. And um, what has the uh, innovation opportunity turned out to be, uh, as well as sort of how the, the industry has coped? Tell us a little bit. Of, give us the overview or the,
1: the briefing from your seat. Sure. So, um, thank you both again for having me. For for those folks who are listening, um, I'm with an organization. We're called the Exhibitions and Conferences Alliance, and what that is is that's essentially the advocacy arm for the business event space. So, conferences, trade shows, expos, all the all the uh, the great in person things that we used to go to uh, all the time and get on planes for, up until March of 2020, when, uh, like Eric said, you know, the meteor hit. And, you know, our unfortunately, you know, this industry, when you think about bringing large groups of people together, it was one of the first ones impacted by the pandemic. And it's one of the last ones, obviously, to come out of it, right? Um, So during the interim, what is fascinating is the industry really took a step back. And as they were getting ready to come back into this new world to think about what is the future of events going to look like? Do you what encourages people to come together and particularly in a world where, you know, travel hopping on three planes a week isn't as common, you know, travel entertainment budgets aren't what they used to be marketing and promotion budgets aren't what they used to be. How do you think about what the future of this world of bringing people together face to face looks like? And so there have been a bunch of different sides of that. Part of that is health and safety, right? Thinking about what does it take to bring people back together. You know, they had some standards that were created. You know, the industry came together and created this thing called the All Secure Standards, and they could provide them to any association or nonprofit or company who was running a trade show or conference to know that, you know, if you do distancing a certain way, if you look at masking a certain way, if you're adopting both federal and state and local health guidelines, you can bring people back together in a really safe way. And it's interesting, we worked with an epidemiology modeling company called Epistemics uh, based up in Pittsburgh, PA. And we did some work with them. And you can look at a given business event and you can say, "Okay, we're going to bring 5000 people here in Madison, Wisconsin in November of 2021 and look at where your audience comes from. Look at vaccination rates and you give people a dashboard and a model that they can see. How safely people can be brought together and what that looks like, and what we're finding now is between industry vaccination rates and health and safety measures, we can actually bring people together in a way that's safer than going to the grocery store. At this point, it's this its own little self contained bubble, which is great. And so now that we know we can bring people together safely, it's like, well, what are we bringing them here for? And it's a couple of different things, right? It's on you know the commercial side. If you're coming to a trade show or you're exhibiting at a conference. Right. We have 1.7 million vendors at shows every year. 80% of them are small business. These people are looking to make relationships. They're looking to grow and cultivate their business in a way that they can't do. Right. It's one thing to put up an Etsy storefront and knit some things, it's another thing to go to a craft show that's got 10,000 people coming through in three days. Right, small businesses need those platforms, and then for associations and other groups, professions, societies that bring people together. You know, think of Skip and think of some of the other ones. Right, it's creating that sense of community and that sense of wanting to be face to face with people. That's maybe a little bit different than it has been before. Right, you know, how many times would you go to, uh, say, a, a conference and? someone would get up at the front of the room and they would give you a 60 minute lecture about something. And you kind of walked out going, I probably could have been done via video, right? Well, now video is the default for that. I think we've done a pretty solid one way um, proof of concept that education can be delivered in a digital format, but the community and connections can't be. And so how do you create something? How do you create environments where people can work on multifaceted problems together? How do you create almost like a flipped classroom kind of model of education, where you're providing information to people ahead of time and then bringing them together to work and co-create with that information. That's, I think, what the future of business events is going to look like. And I think it's a pretty exciting place to be, actually.
2: That's fascinating. And just a follow-up to that. So one of the emergent things that feels like it's going to happen is this hybrid model, where, as you suggest, some things will be moved online maybe as almost prerequisite before you attend the in-person event. So you've got to kind of prove somehow that you've absorbed that content perhaps and that you are able to manipulate it or understand it at least at a higher level. So you come together to actually do problem solving or imagine and, you know, collaborate in situ, so to speak, face-to-face. Um, talk to me a little more about, you know, where you see that in, say, 2025, you know, give me a kind of a three to four
1: year time horizon forecast on that. You're right. I think I think the the world of either something just being digital or something just being in person, I think we're probably not going to see that for some period of time um, where I think if you look at the future, I think what show organizers so either you know for-profit companies who put on things like you know comic-con or associations who put on things like consumer electronics show you've got this focalizing event that brings people together but how do you create a 12-month community around that how do you create something that leads up to it so let's say you're a first-time attendee at a conference or a trade show how do you provide them education and content ahead of time so that they walk in there for the first time as a first-timer with confidence? They're not coming in cold. They're not a complete stranger. I can tell you I'm probably one of the very few um, self-described introverts in my particular line of business. I think that's a really great idea, giving people, letting people make connection before they come in. So they're not like you know the old-timers who've been there a long time, who see everybody and know they, they've got their connections too, and it eases them into the process. But then what can you do for people afterwards that keeps them engaged? How do you create an education cycle? How do you loop them back to keep your particular event top of mind throughout the year? And so the next time, let's say you're eight months after the event, you get that first little save the date material, you immediately run to your calendar, put it on there, and that's a must do. And so I think that's going to be where the combination of in-person and digital comes together. I think what needs to be figured out in the interim is... I think a lot of people went in thinking, you know, oh, it's hybrid, you know, part of it's like this and part of it's, you know, in person and part of it's digital. And what they're finding is it really is two different streams. Hmm. It is really difficult to replicate the in-person experience of an event online. Now, you can create some pretty unique and bespoke digital experiences that can augment that or take the place of that. But you almost run them in parallel in a way that, you know, if you're sitting in front of a camera or sitting in front of a screen and you're seeing a a stream coming from the back of a large auditorium for a keynote speaker and you're watching that through, through your monitor, I don't know, maybe that's not the best experience. Maybe you're looking for something that's a little bit more quick hitting. Maybe you're looking for those experiences like we've seen where they break you out into rooms and you're able to make connections outside of that big group. I think there's going to be a lot of figuring out what that looks like, but I think you're going to see a lot of education delivered digitally now, because I think we've proven we can do it. I think we've got the formats and the platforms allow that to happen, but there's still going to be this yearning for face-to-face. And it's, you know, how do you think about the face-to-face experience differently that brings people back together in a way that makes it an absolute must-do pandemic or not? Cool.
0: I have a somewhat hilarious uh, way of describing the, uh, in an exhibition and conferences environment, obviously, if you've read the book uh, Matchmakers, Eric gave me that book uh, some time ago. Have you read that one, Tommy? It you know it, it describes in that in that particular uh, you know book about you know all venues, whether they be digital or in person, generally have a subsidy side and a money side. And you know, in your world, Tommy, you're going to be thinking about it perhaps like I like I do. You know a lot of times it's the exhibitors or the sponsors who are considered the money side and they subsidize the amount of money that an attendee maybe somebody characterized as coming at it from the buy side in other words somebody that might have a need for said sponsor or exhibitor services or products they have a they have a subsidized ticket in the door with the exchange or you know, unwritten exchange concept being this exhibitor, the sponsor gets a chance to talk with them and interface. And I, I liken that recently, at least uh, since the pandemic hit, trying to do our own, you know, two, three or four, um, you know, exhibitions virtually uh, to a middle school dance. And the middle school dance goes uh, kind of like a seventh grade boy and his buddies are over in one corner and let's say they are the sell side, okay? Uh, and then we have the, the seventh grade girls. Um, over in the other corner, let's say they are the buy side. So in that scenario that I paint for you, how are you um, reconciling when you have sponsors and exhibitors who are saying, look, it's just never gonna be the same developing or building rapport and relationship with people online. And even in a flip classroom or hybrid scenario, where certain elements are done asynchronously uh, or or virtual, and then other elements might be able to be brought, even if it's a local meeting, into a in-person type of format like this, right? Um, you know, what's your response to those that might might have my uh, middle school dance argument, or you know, those that are saying, "Wow, you know, I just can't justify the cost and the the ROI, ROI metrics when." You think about, I'm so limited in the ability for relationships to truly be born out of those first or second encounters. Any response to that idea?
1: Derek, in in, in my world, there's an old saying that plagiarism is the sincerest form of flattery. So when I steal that analogy, I promise to credit you at least (laughs) half the time. Because I, I think you're absolutely right. And we just talked about proofs of concept, Right. We have proven that education can be delivered in a one-way virtual medium effectively and efficiently in a way that meets the needs of the sponsor of the education, the provider of the education, and the need of the learner. I think we've proven we can do that. I think we're also far enough into this experiment to know that there are some things that just don't work, and the exhibit hall is absolutely smack dab center of the bullseye, something that just simply doesn't work. There have been a variety of different experiments tried, different platforms, different formats. How can you bring people together in that virtual world in a way that allows them to have a business conversation, have an introductory conversation? It's one thing when you've done business with someone for a period of time and you're in that maintenance mode. But for trying to attract new business or trying to identify new opportunities for growth for your business or your services, it doesn't work. And let alone for you know the sellers of items that are a little bit more tactile, they need that experience, they need people to be able to see, touch, feel. It just doesn't convey to a virtual environment. So I think there is going to be opportunities for sponsors, for people from the sell side to engage with people virtually. There you know, will be new sponsorship opportunities, there'll be new inventory created as part of that 12 month cycle that we just talked about, but they need that focalizing event to bring people together. And I think it's interesting, we've seen some early evidence of um, trade shows coming back. And across the board, the numbers, generally speaking, haven't been what they were in 2019, pre-pandemic. And I don't think we expected them to. But we're finding something very interesting. On the exhibitor side for some of these earlier shows, you know, it was for some of these, some of the big ones, it was you know around half, 50%, 60%. But on the buyer side, we saw those numbers not drop as far. So it was about 70, 80%. So the people who were there, the exhibitors who were there with you know, their goods, their services, were getting this kind of first mover advantage for actually being out there because people still do want to connect face-to-face. They still need to shake a hand, look, fist bump, look somebody in the eye before they turn over their hard-earned, whether it's their own or their organizations. And that's just a way of doing business. That's why we get together at conferences. That's why we break bread, as I think you were mentioning earlier, at these different events, because it allows people to develop the trust they need to do business with each other. You just can't do that off the jump online. And that's why I think face-to-face is going to be with us in some way, shape, or form for a long time to come. I hadn't thought about that. Uh, you know,
0: essentially, your, your uh, signal-to-noise ratio has
1: improved
0: from the sell side. When you think about you know 50 percent reduction in exhibitors and only a 20 to 30 percent reduction in the buy side, you know uh, more I'm going to call them a general attendee, but I, I mean that the most loving. Oh, no
1: no, absolutely. And, and I'm probably going to date myself and unfortunately date you all in the process in making this analogy, but I think you probably remember in the early days of your professional career where getting to go to the conference or getting to go to the trade show, that was a perk. You had to be there and you were there with serious intent. And so an organization may be sending three people instead of 10 at this point, but those are the three people who are actually the decision makers, the people who are setting strategy, making purchasing decisions, who are determining the direction of an organization. And if you're on the sell side, that's the three you want. You don't want the 10. You want the three that can actually do the deal, talk business. That's who you want to hit, not the people who are roaming around looking for tchotchkes. So I think we're seeing more of that. And I think that may be what the ramp up in 2022 and beyond looks like.
2: So that's really intriguing. One of the things that I've hypothesized is that events are going to get more local in terms of uh, the trends coming out of this. And one thing that really um, stuck with me, we did a, a series last summer called Close the Distance. And it was a weekly webinar, I don't know if you sat in on any of those, but um, we had a longitudinal sentiment analysis that was, you know, when do the jobs come back? When does the revenue come back? When does your whatever it was, I forget the the third question, but the the general sentiment was as we moved through the summer, there was a recognition that those timelines were extending further and further is the, the takeaway and as i sort of observed what was going on in the business travel world specifically travel something like two-thirds of the travel complex is business related uh money-wise but, you know just sheer revenue one-third leisure um how has the recalibration of that affected the cost structure of travel as a component or a ratio of an overall Outing, you know, as you talked about, maybe you're not sending 10, you're sending three, but those three, you know, they're not making up two thirds of the travel complex anymore. They're now making up maybe a third and that leisure travel components, the other third. Is that part of the whole kind of inflation mix that I think we see happening now in the last few months in particular? Uh, travel, hospitality, leisure, and the sort of, you know, almost double-digit inflation that I think we're experiencing, which is just unsustainable, and is, of course, morphing the CPI as a result of all that. So I know there's a lot thrown in there, so I'll just give you a chance to.
1: So what we're seeing is some market dynamics in that world that you just described that are very unnatural, and it's creating some, I think, some unintended consequences. So we have broadly speaking, have come along fairly well with the economic recovery, looking from where we were at, you know, sort of March, April, May of 2020. And you've got a lot of pent up demand, and particularly in that leisure space that you're talking about, that didn't really comprise a large swath of the market, that at least at this current moment is comprising significantly more than it used to. What is exacerbating that is actually some of the travel restrictions that have been put in place on international travel. And you have a situation where you have had at different points in time, Canada, Mexico, European Union, China, India, Russia, United Kingdom, all unable to enter the country by air. That's creating a huge block on what would traditionally be a large segment of business travel which is that international group coming in when you combine that with what you described which is you know companies kind of looking a little more carefully at their travel expenses because you know they went through 2020 and for particular those companies who thrived they were able to thrive while zeroing that uh, particular account out and well i think probably most CFOs aren't you know waiting for that to just immediately sort of springboard back but as long as those international restrictions are in place we're we're putting a significant impediment and barrier into the ability to do business face to face and that's actually one of our biggest policy issues and concerns right now is how do we lower the inbound entry restrictions, how do we ramp up visa processing, because we stopped processing visas as a country pretty much um, in 2020, and how do we get that back so that, you know, we're able to bring people in, we're able to sort of flatten that curve out, and you're not looking at the inflation on the leisure travel side, because the business travel side isn't currently there to support it. And that's something that we're looking at um, pretty seriously right now, and I think it's going to be one that uh, will probably be with us a little while longer.
2: I was gonna ask about visas because I just saw the metric, I think a passport renewal for an American citizens about 18 weeks right now. Um, I don't know what visas for you know foreign travelers inbound to the US is, but I'm guessing it's longer than that <laughs> in terms of getting permission.
1: As we're recording right now, the average visa processing time for someone looking for a B1 or a B2, which is what most business people who are coming to America are looking for, is about 110 days. Wow. So it is about, um, it's about four months. We're finding in some cases, and it, there's variance depending on where you are in the world and what the capacity at that particular embassy or consulate looks like, but we're seeing examples of folks needing to apply six months out, needing to, you know, get decisions early on. You know, for for our industry, the costs of doing a business event are really heavily front-loaded. So that by the time you're about, you know, 30, 60, 90 days out from event, it's pretty fully loaded at that point. You've spent all the money you're going to spend. And if an exhibitor can't make the commitment to be able to attend to be able to put that money down, the person putting on the conference has some very difficult decisions that they need to make far in advance of when, you know, sort of an emergency travel authorization, which the State Department offers, you know, 14 days out, can be made. So it is something that, you know. For for various reasons, and I think it was probably sensible at the time, you know, the US stopped processing a lot of visas because folks weren't coming into the country under any circumstance. But now, as international travel is ramping back up and there's the need to come back together, we've proven that it can be done safely, you know, airfare. But what I think I saw something recently that said airline air there with the HEPA filters and everything, they're recycling air about every four minutes, which is about hospital operating room quality. So while flying still may not be enjoyable you can do it safely. And so people are still interested in doing that. But the capacity to let them in and process visas and passports and all that in a timely manner, we're just still not there yet.
0: Tommy, who are your main clients? Are they the executive directors of these various associations? so, or so my organization, am I totally off
1: base on that? No, no, no. My organization is very interesting. It was formed in February of 2020 or 2021, so earlier this year. And it's a collective effort by various associations and bodies associated with the face-to-face business events world. And so nine associations came together and realized they needed to do a different job of telling their story to the government. And so rather than each one of them taking that in on their own, they came together collectively, stood up this new organization. And so the associations and their leadership are the folks who fund ECA and who are our board members. So we bring together everybody from the conference organizers and the booth builders all the way to the convention centers and even the labor unions that are supplying the labor who puts the show together. So we're all over the place, but um, it was a collective move by the industry not to sort of recreate the wheel and get everybody on side in one kind of very streamlined and efficient way. Yep. Where I'm going
0: with this is uh, stakeholders. Every business has stakeholders. You know, sometimes they're your clients, other times employees, other times uh, downstream partners or upstream partners you know you name it um, when you think about those nine associations or the or the booth builder or the conference organizer or whomever you know when when you're setting up your own stakeholder analysis and I know you have tremendous experience in this through our mutual colleague Craig dr. Craig Fleischer, who uh, speaks extremely highly of you for the record um, you know w- What do you think about, obviously your message has to be tuned to those various different stakeholder groups. Can you help our audience understand
1: a little bit more about your thought process in that regard as it relates to this role? Sure, well, first off, it's nice to know that my checks to uh, Craig still cash, so I appreciate (laughs) that. Good to know things are are good on the banking side. Um, With regard to thinking about the stakeholders, one of the things that in, in such an abrupt, Cliff that the industry hit in March of 2020, what became particularly apparent was this is an industry where truly the rising tide lifts all boats, right? There's not a lot of organizations or not a lot of associations or sort of, you know, advocacy efforts or coalitions or whatever you want to call it who bring together disparate parts in a way that's pretty seamless, right? I have for-profit conference organizers and labor unions sitting there shoulder by shoulder because they understand that if these events aren't going off and they're not able to be done in a way that is financially viable for the people running them, their folks don't work. And that's really what it's all about for us is getting folks back to business, getting folks back to work. And it allows the industry to communicate with a single messaging platform that whether we're communicating to some of our external stakeholders in in the, the sort of broader policy realm, like you know, maybe members of Congress or folks in the Biden administration or something that we did a lot in the early stages of 2021, working with local public health officials and governors and mayors to tell them the story of how events could be delivered safely because no one had really ever considered it before. That's how, you know, being able to bring everybody together on a single platform and with a single, you know, set of messages and data points allows us to sort of very clearly convey our story to folks and one of the things that's been very interesting and I think very heartening for our work to see is you can start to see those picked up by those external stakeholders and they're using them and they're carrying your message forward. And that means that they've obviously internalized the benefits and the value you provide, and they're able to communicate them out to their stakeholders, which in my business and in my lines, really, uh, it's the best you can hope for.
0: Yeah, doubt. it's like you're a consultant to all those stakeholder groups and you got to figure out your messaging.
1: it's right it's trying to find a a platform that everybody sees themselves and everybody sees their success in and then being able to deliver that to those other stakeholders you know particularly if you're thinking about folks you know in, in the political realm you've got a lot of different viewpoints a lot of different areas of interest and it's kind of doing you know going back to the ci days you know doing the predictive behavior analysis that allows you to say okay if i'm talking to person x i know they care about why so i want to make sure that i'm accentuating the why in my message to be able to connect with them in a way where they're receptive to understand you know what the challenge is and how they can be helpful to it and so you know you you go back to you know all, all those kinds of you know stakeholder analysis tools from the ci toolkit and they they drive a lot of value every day
2: you're um, reminding me of how much money we've spent at conferences and exhibitions and events not just sponsoring the event and sort of pulling that off but in the city where it's held Um, and i don't know i'm sure you've got a ratio of what that you know overall downstream economic what do they call that uh where it cycles economic impact yeah economic impact there's another word for it though i'm thinking of the turnover of the dollars and how they you know, the multiplier, the multiplier of how the, uh, the a dollar spent at a business conference turns into $21 of economic impact, that whole thing. And, uh, you know, I, was, I remember sitting, uh, it was March 13th and I was in uh, Milwaukee in the office of the Milwaukee Metropolitan Association of Commerce. And the CEO uh, walked into the conference room, we were debriefing from a workshop that we'd done around artificial intelligence. And uh, he said to me, so Eric, do you think this COVID thing is going to affect Milwaukee? And I said, well, uh, tonight I'm going to go lock down and I'll see you in a year or two when it's over. And his jaw hit the table and he said, well, what are we going to do about that? I mean, he's right down there in the downtown Milwaukee area. They're surrounded by hotels and restaurants and, you know, things to do, which, of course, came to stop. And as I thought about that, I thought, man, how many how many dollars have we spent in bars and restaurants and throwing rock and roll dance parties and you know all the stuff that goes on you know at at a conference like that? Um, And that's where my question earlier about the locality part: how more local are these things inevitably going to become? Because candidly, I live in Madison, Wisconsin. I'm thinking about bringing people to. This place, as opposed to you know, bring the bring the mountain to Muhammad, so to speak, rather than Muhammad to the mountain. I guess is the analogy is maybe a strain one. But how is that local aspect? And I'll go back to that again. How is the local aspect changing what it is you do and who you advocate for? Is it easier, in other words, to take overnight travel out of the equation and build a local audience, which may be smaller? which may be a little less specific, but which you address in a different way so that the event itself is innovative to those people who live around the event. I'm just curious about your thoughts on that.
1: I think you're seeing some associations in particular moving towards that right now. They're calling it sort of the hub model Mm -hmm. where particularly for those associations that have large global footprints they're beginning to regionalize their events around the world and so you might have like a, a focal place like let's say the global headquarters you know the global event is going to take place in person in madison wisconsin but if you're in the apac region you might have a hub in singapore if you're in europe you might have a hub in brussels so we're not really seeing it as much domestically but we're certainly seeing it on the international scale. Now, to your point about the size and scope, and I can first off, I can speak to the rock and roll dance parties you threw, they were always top notch. Um, but it's uh, some just staggering numbers at the local le- or the national level. In 2019, so sort of the last year pre pandemic, $396 billion contribution to GDP out of in person events, 6.6 million jobs supported nationwide. 130 billion dollars in state and local taxes brought about by these events so to your point um there were lots of mayors nationwide who were very anxious to reopen events in late 2020 and early 2021 because what's the what's the old saying you don't know what you've got until it's gone yeah that tax revenue that impact on restaurants hotels transportation, Main Street commerce, all those knock-on effects from what the in-person events world looks like. People really miss that. Here, A couple of more numbers about what 2019 looked like. Hotel spend around business events in America, $55 billion. 32 billion airlines. Restaurants, 30 billion. Ground transportation, 29 billion. Wow. All evaporated. A quarter of a trillion. That's why people on the policy right. making side were so interested in seeing these come back together safely because even not fully back up and running at 100% level, just going from zero to wherever they are in the maturity cycle of regrowing these events is a tremendous boon to local communities.
0: Hmm. Wow. Those are staggering statistics. You've just given me an idea, by the way, Eric and I. As you might might, uh, understand, we're trying to figure out how we bring our reconverge concept back into the fray. And something you said about this hub and spoke model has got my gears turning, maybe yours too, Eric. Let's switch gears for a second, Tommy. In the the true sort of uh, namesake of this podcast, running into the fog, I happen to know that you and your family uh, sort of did that with a fire not too many years ago, we had another podcast guest on, Joe Goldberg, an author, a dear friend who experienced something similar several years back. Um, You know, I I always like to, not that it's a fun fact, but it's a fact that uh, you and your wife and and kids um, encountered that tragedy. You know, what, do you have any uh, sort of uh, from the, the lowest of lows, you know, and what that, sort of scenario brought to you maybe what you learned from it anything that you can share with our listeners that uh you know only that experience would uh be able to give you some perspective on
1: no absolutely i mean what, what what do we what do you talk about in ci right you're always looking for those 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 black swans those events that just completely reshape and you know break break existing barriers down and break existing structures down and i think that's what an experience like that does to you right you think about all the complications in life you think about all the day to day the details the to do lists running around in your head the things that you're trying to do that you know are they the most important are they the most critical things you could be doing right now maybe maybe not but you're in the fog like like you used as the metaphor and you're, you're going through it and you're just you're experiencing life as you know it and then a situation like that happens and it basically just pulls the ground out from underneath your feet and you get back to just something so basic and so elemental that you know you're focusing on day one you know okay i need a place to sleep i need a toothbrush right Day two, ooh, I should probably get some, you know, we're gonna need clothes for the week, right? Things like that. And you begin to build back in a way that is helps you understand sort of if you had, if your life had its own Maslow's hierarchy, right? What's the most immediate? What then gets layered on top of it? What are those needs? What do you need as a family, as, as a unit, as individuals that allows you to then take the next step and get back into the professional realm, get back into the social realm, whatever it is. And I think it gives you, you know, you of course, you know, would not necessarily um, like to go through the experience to get it, but I think it just gives you an astonishing amount of clarity. And it allows you to break the the preconceptions and the patterns and the habits that sort of go through your day-to-day life that you aren't necessarily as front and center and conscious about. And it allows you to you know, I know this phrase has been used a little bit too much in the US in 2021, but it allows you to build back better in a way that's more strategic and more thoughtful and purposeful than maybe you were beforehand. I mean, how many organizations do you all look, work with that have existing norms and processes and procedures and culture that sometimes is really beneficial and sometimes maybe isn't. And in a situation like that, just sort of allowed all of us, you know, as we got past the initial shock of it, to sort of take a step back, think about what the future wanted to look like, and then go and pursue that and maybe not focus on some of the other things that existed beforehand. And I'll give you a perfect example of this. Um, As we were going through the process, we were, you know, day-to-day looked different. You know, we were in, you know, some temporary housing and we're trying to think, okay, you know, what, what can we do to make the most of this time? And my wife had decided, you know, I thought, I'm thinking about grad school something that we had never been on the agenda, something that never had been thought about. And earlier this year, she graduated with her master's degree from Harvard. Yeah, I
0: saw that online. It may not happen
1: without going through that process. So there's an initial shock. There's an initial numbness to it all. You know, you're really concerned about sort of those core, you know, safety and, you know, just basic attributes in in the early stages. But it does give you an opportunity to, to take a look back and to, you know, develop some clarity around what you want your life and your career and your relationships to look like and like i said i wouldn't wish it on anybody but you know I'd, I'd at least like to hope i came out of the process maybe a little different a little better than the way i went in
0: and this fire that you the fire that you allude to was how many years ago uh
1: it was about five years ago yeah right five before uh, christmas in
2: 2016. Mm. some christmas while well, you you What you're alluding to there, I think, is that, you know, you are starting from a clean slate, so to speak. Um,
1: How how often do we talk about the the ability to pull out a a blank sheet of paper or look at the blue ocean and try to figure out, you know, where you could go if you were unencumbered by everything else? And it does give you a chance to look at that. And, you know, Eric, you sort of mentioned Christmas. I think one of the other things that it did and probably plays into what the world looks like in 2021 is I think if you. If you just spend all day on Twitter and if you look at the news, no matter where you get your news from, I think you would probably see a society that may not be as high performing as we would like. And I think you probably see some tensions and you know some tribalism that probably isn't necessarily um, the most beneficial. And I can tell you in my world, I professionally see that all, all the time in working here in Washington, DC and being around the Capitol Hill world you never appreciate your community that you're in and the people around you until you experience something like that i can tell you that there were um moments of kindness and and grace in in those days from um both friends and strangers that just really um you know it, it shapes you and it sticks with you for a long time which is what you really wanted to do
2: that's beautiful well so much of our lives is driven by inertia by what we did yesterday and the day before that and the day before that and suddenly you've got this break from that inertia that you've got to rebuild, you know, everything. And you've got your loved ones, you've got your family there, and you've got your friends who aren't rebuilding from nothing. And they're, they're able to offer that kind of support that you never imagined needing. I think that's the thing about Americans is we're individualistic to a fault in the sense that I can't imagine needing that kind of help. And then the vulnerability and the humility that I think accompanies that, that you're forced to accept that kind of help. That's something that I think culturally uh, is is something we're gonna find ourselves working on for the decade ahead. Uh, And I'll just remark, and I'm I'm interested in your thoughts about this. During lockdown, my wife Tina has said many times that, you know, with our oldest as a senior in high school, that was a real gift. The lockdown was a gift, having to do homeschool and having all four kids under the same roof all day and, you know, night, obviously. But that recalibration of reality, that clean slate, it is as if our old life melted away and we have this new life now. We're actually quite circumspect about it in the sense that we're grateful for that. Time and you know we we have never spent that much time together as a family. Now there were sacrifices. I haven't seen my kid brother in the flesh in 19 months, (laughs) but will next week. Uh, But you know the talk to me a little bit about where our country and that might might be a fitting place to kind of wrap today is where's our country need to go in order to heal is not quite the right word but recalibrate I think for this world that we are freshly experiencing.
1: Well, I think what you just referred to as you were speaking was empathy. And I think that's something we all really um, need need to focus on and need to come back to because, you know, I, I work in the business of politics and politics is not a space where empathy is rewarded or encouraged at this point. And I think you can clearly see, you know, circa 2021, what that has delivered. You know, there's You know, there's this this perception of D.C. that, you know, it's, uh, you know, all these backroom deals and cigars and whiskey and steakhouses and everything like that. Well, that's not really as much of D.C. as it used to be. Um, You used to be able to break bread with your rivals. You used to be able to, you know, slug something out politically. I think, you know, Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill in the 80s were always the great examples of this, of people who were just, you know, cats and dogs all day long. And you hear these stories of them having a drink at the end of the day. And uh, just reflecting on the things that matter in life, you know, friends and family and faith and all those things that you know we all hold so dear, and we need to find a way to get back to that because you I mean if you think of you know a, a, you know a, cu- a couple of months ago, you know, for folks who are listening, you know, we we saw the 20th anniversary of September 11th, and this is you know that was a moment that I think was kind of singular in America in terms of everyone sort of having a shared experience and a shared emotion around that, and I don't think we have that right now, and I think. Probably because of the pandemic, and you know, doing a lot of our lives through screens right now, that I think it has taken some of the human connection and some of the opportunities to build empathy with those you you may not agree with politically. Um, it, it's caused some strain there, and you know, there there are you know you know pick pick an issue, there are are reasoned um, arguments around most of them. And I don't know that we necessarily value that right now. And I don't necessarily know that we reward our political leaders in a way that encourages them to find sort of that middle and common ground and engage in sort of that old school horse trading that, you know, may not necessarily have been as as transparent as everything is now. And, you know, you can't see all that on Twitter or live stream it but a lot of business got done and we used to kind of play political life between the 30s instead of the full 100 yards of the field that we're kind of looking at now and i think there's i think there's an opportunity to do that going forward there is a little bit of me that fears things might get worse before they get better but it's something that we all need to bring because you know we are at least as we sit here right now politically a fairly evenly divided country and i don't know that a system where you know there's pure win and loss on one side or the other is necessarily the best way to govern. It does seem like at least here in Washington, D.C., the last 20 years politically have been marked by a lot of gridlock and a lot of gnashing of teeth and a lot of mudslinging. And then maybe for a year or two, one political party or the other gets controls of all the levers of government and crams through as much as they can. Um, dams the torpedoes and uh, then we go back to more gridlock and gnashing of teeth and mudslinging. I don't know. I, hopefully there's an opportunity to break away from that because, you know, for all the the politicians that, you know, um, have gained their notoriety and gained their following and in some ways their financing from um, moving to one extreme or the other, you know, as you, you know, sort of day to day being in the, in the Capitol Hill world. There are lots of people who really came here to roll up their sleeves and do some work. And, you know, to to, to the degree that we can empower them and support them as they're trying to come up with pragmatic solutions as opposed to just, you know, creating uh, politics 140 characters at a time, I think we might, uh, we might find ourselves in a better spot.
2: I love the empathy, uh, you know, centrality there. And I think uh, one of the best pieces of advice I got early in my business career was, um, don't be quite so sure of yourself, kid. Uh, You know, and that's still true. And I think if we were all a little collectively less sure of ourselves and could empathize with someone else's, you know, perspective, maybe even synthesize those perspectives together, we might end up with a higher resolution picture of reality by the time we were done.
1: Every every day, I wish I was as smart as I thought I was when I was 23. Life would be a much different place. (laughs) That's the truth.
2: Derek, take us home. So, um... Before I
0: take us uh, with final remarks, Tommy, how do people connect with you uh, out the market? Those listeners that might be hearing this podcast in the second part of November 2021, how do they find Tommy? How do they interfere? Interface with you out there in the so for those
1: of you who are listening to this podcast first off congratulations on your wonderful taste in podcasts um, <laughs> this has been uh, this is a, a regular listen for me so it's definitely an honor to be here with you two gentlemen um, come find me on LinkedIn uh, come find me on twitter it's Tommy Goodwin uh, all one word all lowercase and uh, connect with me let me know you heard me here and uh, love to continue the dialogue there
0: that's awesome uh, checks in the mail like you said about Craig the <laughs> You know, I never know. What's fun about this podcast is I never know when I start down another little junket of the conversation, exactly where it's going to go, and my bringing up, you know, the, uh, you know, the uncertain events of this five years, almost five years ago, fire that you and your wife and children encountered. I didn't know that that might lead us to a discussion of vulnerability and empathy and humility, but I thought it was a perfect way to kind of round out an otherwise, you know, pretty. Uh, you know, by the books, so to speak, uh, podcast discussion. And I uh, love that we got to that point. I love Eric's comment about how, you know, if you look at certain things with a different lens, lockdowns with your senior uh, about to graduate son can be seen as a real gift. Fires might give you a perspective on life that, frankly, you wouldn't get if you didn't go through it. The loss of a loved one, I experienced that a couple weeks ago. Um you know, I've said it before on this podcast, and I'll continue to say it. Our our parents, our mom actually passed away 20 years ago, two days ago. Uh, uh, five days before 9/11 occurred, uh, she uh, passed away, and then our dad was a couple years before that. And I, I think it's, I don't know, maybe it's maybe it's not factual, but the the idea that Eric and I would go to work together, um, I think, was born out of. You know, those scenarios that we had to go through together as, as only siblings. So, you know, uh, we appreciate everybody that listens to the uh, Johnson Brothers podcast running into the fog and uh, especially appreciate great guests, long-term friends, people in our industry that we know we could call, you know, if we had a problem or an opportunity, you know, like, and Tommy, I know I speak for Eric when I say that we consider you that, uh, that person. And, uh, you know, that type of person that uh, almost anybody listening to this podcast could call if they needed somebody to, to uh, bend their ear.
1: Well, it's been an honor to uh, to know you and, and be friends with you all as, as long as we have. And I mean, after all, you know, we we met in the business world, but, uh, you know, it is always good to uh, spend time with your old friends. And that's what this podcast has been. So I appreciate the opportunity and I appreciate everybody uh, listening uh, into uh, what this would have sounded like even if we weren't recording it. So I uh, appreciate everybody.
2: Well, thanks everybody for joining us for another edition of Running Into the Fog. Derek, great job. Tommy, what a pleasure uh, it's been to have you on here and I can't wait till we can uh, crack a beer together and enjoy a little, uh, you know, breaking of glass maybe before we break some bread. Uh, We'll we'll see how that might go, but uh, stay cool guys and thanks again. Thanks everybody.